Hello and welcome to the Simongos podcast. This is episode 51 and this is part three of our series on humanitarian medicine with Dr. Aaron Kilborn. So this is the final part and I would recommend that you go back and listen to parts one and two if you have not already done so. When we left Aaron in part two, she was discussing the four skills that she thought were important for humanitarian medicine work. And that was good communication, flexibility and creativity, resilience and understanding your vulnerabilities, weaknesses and prejudices. So let's just jump right back in. And do you think it's absolutely essential to to be strong in all of these skills? Or can you pick up some of these skills being there if you're open and, you know, hardworking? Can you, I, I presume that you've developed a lot of these skills on mission. I'm not sure that, do you know what I'm trying to say? Like yeah. you, you didn't have necessarily all of those skills when you first went out, but you, you can develop them as you progress. Is that, is that fair? I think that's very fair. I'm, I'm, you know, I'll put my hands up and say I'm absolutely not perfect and I still have a lot of work to do and every mission I go to, because as you pointed out, there's so much variety in the types of missions I've done. Every single one is a learning experience for me and every single one I go to, the team dynamic will be different because the individuals I'm working with change. So even if I go back to the same country, um, and I, I haven't had that before, but I have colleagues who've been back to work at, you know, in the Congo, for example, on the Ebola missions multiple times, but every single time the context changes because maybe the political environment has shifted or some of the staff have changed. And so that changes the dynamic that you're working in too. So every single time you go, it changes a little bit. And that that can also contribute to how you perform in that environment as well. Um, so I think as long as you go with an open mind to kind of be like, okay, I know I've got things I can bring to the table here, but I'm definitely going to be learning a lot here. And it feels like that's nearly probably one of the the strongest skill requirements is just adaptability yeah. and flexibility and, yeah. you know, being able to adapt to whatever life throws at you, yeah, which you can 100%. never probably prepare for, you know, <laughs> when you've experienced what you've experienced. Okay, any words of warning for people listening. I mean, we don't want to put people off and totally we want to encourage uh, people to, to consider this. It's not for everyone, but we don't want to put people off. But are there any words of warning? I think um, be very careful about the organisation that you choose to go with. Um, I would do your research. So obviously my experience has been um, predominantly with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières. It is definitely not the only organisation out there. They're very good at what they do, but they're and they like to think that they're best, and perhaps they are. But there's other organisations that do very, very good work as well. I would just say, just do your research and understand the organisation and what it is that they're about. I think if you're especially going into context where you're going to have a really intense security situation, whether it's a country that's actively at war or whether there's, um, you know, like a place like Gaza where you, it's a, it's essentially a war zone, but it's it's a place that's very, very easily manipulated by the kind of international powers and the context can change very rapidly. Um, I think you need to be, be prepared um, when you go to that kind of a, an environment um, that things can change a lot. And um, I would also say that if you're looking at the different organizations, um, understanding how they're financed, because that can have a big impact on the impartiality of the organization or the type of program that they offer. Um, I'll give one example. We had a roundtable discussion with a multiple of, uh, multitude of organizations when we were in Central African Republic. Now, unfortunately, CAR as a country their primary employer in the country on the whole is the NGO sector. So the country is very, very broken uh, after years of war. And all these NGOs were sitting down and they were looking at 
um, how much they were spending on international staff, on local staff, um, on housing for their staff, etc., etc. And the budgets for a lot of other organizations were much bigger when it came to how they looked after their international staff. And for MSF, it was a lot smaller. One of the interesting things, though, was when you looked at the budget for the actual money coming in for the people that needed it for healthcare, for equipment and for pharmacy and logistics and so on was much, much, much bigger. And we had two airplanes that we could use to transport people and equipment and so on into the rural districts. Nobody else had that. And I'm not saying that that made us the best organization, but it definitely gave us a bit, a lot more flexibility because the money that we have coming in is from private donations and it's not tied to anything in particular. So nobody else can say to us, this is what you must do. So as an organization, MSF can make a decision independently and say, well, we have done a needs assessment and in collaboration with local actors, this is what we feel that needs to happen and this is what we are going to do. And in terms of someone who's listening but maybe says, oh, some of what you've described might be a little too much for me, I might like to just dip my toes in a little bit, how much flexibility is there, and I know your experience is primarily with uh, Medicine Sans Frontier, but... Do they try to to um, pair you with the right jobs? Do they try to press you into things that maybe are beyond your skill set? Or do you have a little bit of choice and flexibility in terms of where your first mission would be if you want to just try it without something that might feel too pressureful? I think if you're wanting to just dip your toe, I wouldn't go in with MSF as a first mission because they tend to ask you quite a long time commitment as a first mission. It would be between nine and 12 months. Now that's partly because the organisation wants to see how you are for them and also are they for you um, because it may not be the right match um, they will generally try and match you according to your skill set and your experience to a mission so let's say if you're you've finished your core medical training and you're at that kind of in-between bit and you're thinking you want to go out and do a mission that's okay um, they may say to you well how would you like to be the doctor in a refugee camp in South Sudan because what we need is a generalist essentially. And that would be an entirely appropriate type thing. Or if you're already a qualified GP, there are lots of GPs that work with MSF as well, and they will do sort of the general medical clinics um, in some of the more kind of stable environments. Um, If you're a trauma surgeon, of course, you're going to be going to a place where they need trauma surgeons. So somewhere like Gaza, like Syria, like Central African Republic. Um, If you have experience in burns, then somewhere like Haiti would be entirely appropriate, you know. So it will, they will definitely try and match your profile and your experience to um, a mission as much as they can. If you're, um, I discovered recently that um, actually the Scottish government has um, a program that they are supporting. It's called the Scottish uh, NHS Scotland's Global Citizenship Board, and it's on a website scottishglobalhealth.org. And this is vetted at a very high level um, in government, where they're trying to look at ways that the NHS can actually. Um, in Scotland and people who work for the NHS can, can represent um, sort of global healthcare. And there's partnerships now that exist and have existed for a long time with countries like Malawi, Zambia, uh, Pakistan, for example. And these are established programs. And some of the guys, for example, in emergency medicine from Tayside, they're involved with a partnership setting up um, uh, emergency care services in Malawi. So there are opportunities within Scotland to get involved with international Um, kind of programs that don't necessarily mean that you have to have a 12 or nine month um, time commitment and go through a very rigorous vetting process. Um, There's also local organisations that you can volunteer with if you're not within within Scotland. Certainly down in England, in London, they've got um, Doctors of the World 
um, also a French organization, so Médecins du Monde. Um, they work in collaboration with Amnesty in London, working for um, the health of ref refugees and helping to kind of help asylum seekers going through the paperwork and sometimes contest rejections of asylum as well. So there's very important work happening also locally and getting involved with those organizations might be a way to kind of just start to see, is this something I want to do? Um, and as I said, there's so many different organizations out there. There's also um, UK Med. They have a register of doctors and nurses from lots of different specialties. Um, so it's not just doctors, it's nurses as well. And in some cases, paramedics, although the role for paramedics is still limited and they're looking at how they can expand that. Um, and they they have uh, response units that will go out. For example, um, in Samoa, they've been working recently on a measles epidemic. Um, they've also been active in the kind of Ebola programs in, in Western Africa when there was that big outbreak a couple of years ago. So the variety of work that they do is very very big um, and again they tend to be more kind of consultant level and senior doctors and senior nurses but not necessarily so there's there is a bit of variety and a bit of scope for getting involved okay so say someone is listening and they've loved the podcast they're feeling very inspired Aaron. you've given <laughs> a great talk here and they they're ready to take that step and they feel that they'd be ready for something like medicine on frontier what would you advise them you know they're 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 a purely NHS, say, a, you know, either a doctor or nurse or, or paramedic, they've not got any outside experience outside of their standard training. What should they do? What would you recommend? So one of the most common questions I get asked is, oh, well, I can't really do this, can I? Because I don't speak another language. And I would say that that is a commonly held misbelief. Um, another language is an absolute asset. It's a boon, definitely, but it is not a prerequisite. And it's important to say that... that the main language of Médecins Sans Frontier is English. Well, it's it, it it depends actually. So the UK office, UK and Ireland office, um, they work in collaboration with MSF um, OCAs, which is the Operational Centre in Amsterdam, and their working language is English. And some of the programmes that uh, MSF France, MSF Geneva, MSF Brussels, MSF um, uh, Barcelona and Athens they will operate also in English in some of the contexts that they work in. For example, the work in Syria we were doing, all the reporting and the team was very international and our common language was English and we worked with translators. But there is a large cohort of French-speaking uh, countries that we do work in as well, so having French is absolutely an asset. But if you speak Arabic or Urdu or Spanish or, or Russian, you know, there's there, there are programmes literally all over the world. And so having any other language of, of those listed is definitely, definitely helpful. So it's a pre it's not a prerequisite, but it's helpful. The thing that is a prerequisite these days is having uh, some kind of um, uh, diploma or postgraduate certificate, some kind of qualification in tropical medicine. And that is because many of the contexts that we work in, we see um, disease patterns that you don't really see in Northern Europe or North America. And as a result, we want you to be confident that you would be able to even just think of it in your differential diagnosis and have an idea about the management for these diseases. So things like TB and HIV, of course, we do see here sometimes, but they're much more common in these parts of the world. Um, and some more unusual things like cutaneous leishmaniasis and some other diseases, you know, you need to think about that as a... As and where a, did you do your training? So um, commonly people from the UK obviously will either go to London or Liverpool to do their DTMH. So that's the Diploma of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. Those are both very good options, very well established schools, but they're not the only options. Um, there are English uh, language courses also in the Leopold Institute, which is the Institute of Tropical Medicine in Antwerp in Belgium. 
and it does an equivalent course. It's a PGC, so it's a postgraduate certificate rather than a diploma. But actually, I've compared the um, course modules and course content, and it's pretty much like for like. And you get a lot more lab time in the course in Belgium than I think you do in the other two courses. But they're all very good. And actually, Glasgow will also runs one as well as a long distance learning course with um, a lot of online based uh, modules and some evening lectures. And then you just have to go to London for the exam. So there's lots of different options if you're wanting to stay in the UK. Um, but yeah, have a look online because there are Lots and lots of different options out there. Um, there's also a tropical medicine school in Bangkok if you wanted to go a bit further afield and it's also taught in English. If you're adventurous. Mm-hmm. And so say you do that, then how do you approach MSF? I presume it's very clear online. Is it, yeah. Do you just go to their website and I want yep. to be a volunteer Is that and just yep. follow the process? Yes, and keep in mind it's quite a lengthy process. So they get a lot of applications and they have a very strict vetting process and it can take a long time. And even once you've had an interview and they've said, yep, great, we like you, we're going to we'd like you to get involved with us there can be months and months and months before you hear anything from them and that's entirely normal I know for nurses at the moment it's about a one-year waiting list to get to go from having your interview and being like yeah we'll have you on board to actually being matched to a mission which sounds crazy but if you think about it we are the UK is not the only pool the missions you're almost kind of in competition with people from all the other MSF uh uh operational centers and the, their pools um so when when you get matched to a mission it's because they found that you're the one who has the availability your profile matches what it is that they're looking for and the timing works out well so you know and and of course you have the you, you have the right to say no and reject a mission but usually as i said the first mission tends to be pretty strict in terms of what they will offer you and the time commitments that they ask for Okay, so someone else listening has taken your advice. They've gone through all of those steps that you've just described and they're about to go on their very, very first mission. Now, you've been on a few. What what, what would be your top, say, if, if you can give us five, your top tips before setting off on your first mission? Bring earplugs. Everywhere you go is noisy. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. Uh, in Haiti, they used to do these sort of, uh, these all-night parties every once in a while and they would be right outside... <laughs> Like, and it felt like they were in your room and it would go all night and it would be loud. Um, Central African Republic, they do these like all night long wakes for whenever there's a death. And it's like, and they bring he- enormous speaker systems and the entire community comes. And it again is very noisy. And in Syria, you've got the mosque calls at all times of day and night as well. And you just... Sounds for like some you're reason, need industrial standard <laughs> earplugs. <laughs> for some reason, there's always a rooster. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, earplugs is a definitely must. Um, I always try and bring a big fat hard drive with lots and lots of films on it because although you're probably going to have a decent internet connection where you go, that's not always guaranteed. And it's very good to have your own personal computer and a hard drive or a USB stick with some films and television programs and series on it just for a bit of downtime. Um, it's also used as a bartering tool with your colleagues because most other people that come on mission will also have them so you can do bits of swapsies as well for um, other films and programs too so that's always useful and I usually bring like some games um, whether it's a chess set or like a domino thing or some cards because usually other people will bring them too but it's just nice to have that of an evening just something again that you can kind of chill out with your colleagues and just do something that's completely nothing to do with your medical work um, as a distraction tool and a couple of good books Colleagues always appreciate as well if you're passing through airports, you just pick up a bunch of magazines. Doesn't matter if you're going to read them necessarily, but bring them for the team. 
If you're going to a place where there's no alcohol ban, bring a nice bottle of wine, especially if you're working with the French or the Belgians, they'll definitely appreciate any kind of food or drink related uh, luxury item that you can bring in your bag. And chocolate is okay everywhere. So I think what you're saying is bring as much home comforts. Is that right? Because mm-hmm. I think you, you also mentioned before one time an Italian surgeon who brought a lot of food. Uh, so what, what was that like? Yeah, yeah. Let's just say that his culinary skills were at least on a par with his surgical skills. Um, he was um, an older guy who had brought essentially three suitcases with him, two of which were full of food items. <laughs> and it included things like uh, this cake that his wife had made and like packets of dried porcini mushrooms and herbs and like a base for pasta sauces because he didn't believe that we would have decent quality food in Central African Republic. He wasn't entirely wrong. Um, but he, yeah, he spent most evenings uh, in the kitchen with one of our mamas who did the cooking for us, uh, showing her different recipes and experimenting and feeding us the most incredible pasta dishes, basically. Wow. And it must be quite sad. Did he manage to stretch that out over a full mission? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. He'd brought, he'd brought enough stuff to really, um, and there was stuff left over even after he left. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what about staying in touch with family? Have you found that challenging or is the technology increasingly available in these remoter places? Uh, how have you, how have you found that part of the job? I've been quite lucky. The most of my missions, we've had a more or less decent Wi-Fi connection, um, not necessarily in the home base, but certainly in the office spaces that we go to. So you will be able to kind of go and make a quick call or have a quick Skype chat or FaceTime or whatever. Um, most places as well, you you'll be able to use WhatsApp um, whenever you do have a Wi-Fi signal. You will always have a local cell phone wherever you go, and that's for security purposes and for communicating with your teams on the ground. It's okay to give that number to your family in some circumstances, not all, but so occasionally they may be able to text you on that number as well. You may not be able to reply with that number, but usually you can, and you can buy data and stuff as well for that. Um, I know certainly... In some of the places that we go, um, the Wi-Fi connection is brilliant and there's there's no issue with staying in touch. But um, there are some more rural areas where it might be satellite phones, in which case it is a bit more challenging. And you might have the right to just, you know, once a week, a quick just check in just to say, hey, guys, I'm OK. This is where we're at and I'll contact you again next week. Um, so it can be quite varied. Um, but most cases you'll you'll have you'll have the ability to contact home. Okay, Erin, so thank you very, very much. That's been quite a quite a run through humanitarian work. Thank you so much. A- anything that we've missed out, anything you want to just get in before we, we finish up? I think just to go back to the question you asked, just to go back to the question that you asked about uh, any courses and preparation before you go, um, most organisations will absolutely make sure that you're up to date with all of your certificates. Um, so according to you know whatever local training you have available, but for the UK, your advanced life support courses, advanced trauma supports, um, paediatrics, so ATLS, APLS, ALS, uh, make sure you've got those. Um, I think that there's some really good courses that are for free online as well with the WHO. So it's Open Who it's called and it's online courses that you can do. A lot of them are kind of public health based things, but they're very there's a huge variety there and they're very interesting and they're free. Um, And uh, I would also just say that, you know, just to kind of finish off, the most important thing for me, for anybody who goes, you go because you're passionate about it and you want to travel and you want to go and do something for altruistic reasons, but also understand that you're really doing it for yourself and be okay in an environment that is very alien to your own. But the most important of all is that you need to maintain your sense of professionalism 
And whatever code of conduct that you follow at home, make sure that you apply that overseas as well. Aaron Kilborn, thank you very much. I, I always finish every podcast by asking every speaker the same question. So if you don't mind, I'll do the same with you. If you could go back in a time machine and you could meet your junior self just leaving medical school, uh, what single piece of advice would you give them? What have you gained from all your experience so far that would be valuable to someone starting their career? I so much love talking to people that for me the key thing would be languages, 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 languages. Um, I know I said it's not a prerequisite for going, it is not, but by golly it's useful and um, I really wish I'd managed to get my Spanish up to scratch. <laughs> not too late, not too late. Absolutely not. So go to that class, get that app, you know, build your build your languages, that's fantastic. Well look Erin, it's been absolutely brilliant and, and although when this goes live you will be in Gaza. I would still like to wish you well on your trip. I hope it goes safely. I hope it's very productive and I hope you have a fantastic experience there. Thank you very much. 